Welcome. I want to get started because we have such a limited time together today, and I'm so excited about today's presentation. So you all can continue to set up some chairs and grab some food, um, but I want to move on with the program. I'm Sarah Raskin. I'm currently the director of the neuroscience program here at Trinity, and I am extremely honored to be able to introduce the kickoff event of our year-long celebration of 25 years of neuroscience at Trinity College. Trinity was one of the very first colleges in the country to have a neuroscience program, and we continue to be a leader as demonstrated by our curriculum that includes biology, psychology, chemistry, engineering, and philosophy, and innovations like our new Fast Track Master's program. This year we'll be celebrating in a variety of ways. We will have world-famous speakers such as Tony Wiscori, known for his work on young blood as a treatment for Alzheimer's, Deborah Fine, whose work on the optimum outcome of autism has been featured on the cover of the New York Times Magazine not once, but twice. Dave Tolan, who hosted Hoarders and the OCD Project on television. And Joe Ledoux, whose books include Synaptic Self and the Just Come Out Anxious, and he's bringing with him his band, the Amygdaloids. <laughs> We celebrate, see the neuroscientists get it. We celebrate across the curriculum with talks that feature the sciences, of course, but also the arts, the humanities, and the social sciences. We have partnered with the Center for Teaching and Learning, the Trinity Institute for Interdisciplinary Studies, the Science for the Greater Good series, the Athletic Department, and Cine Studio, and we are grateful to all of them for their support. We've also reached out to the community and created events at Real Artways, Park Road Playhouse, the Connecticut Science Center, and the Connecticut Forum. And we're organizing community service events, such as a 5K to benefit the Brain Injury Alliance of Connecticut, so start training now, and a Brain B for local high school students. And of course, how fortunate are we that on this, the year of 25 years of neuroscience at Trinity, the president of Trinity College is herself a renowned neuroscientist. We invite you to join us for all of these events throughout the year. You'll see slips of paper at your table that give the website that lists all of the events, and you'll begin to see posters go up tomorrow around campus. And now I would like to introduce to you the co-presidents of the Trinity Chapter of NeuroSci, the National Honor Society in Neuroscience, Aaron Eisenberg and Amina Qureshi, who will introduce President Berger Sweeney. In recognition of outstanding achievement in the areas of neuroscience scholarship and research, and in compliance with all of the requirements of NeuroSci National Constitution, we hereby grant lifetime membership of, in NeuroSci, the National Honor Society in Neuroscience, to President Berger Sweeney. And President Berger Sweeney became Trinity's 22nd president on July 1, 2014. President Berger Sweeney came to Trinity from Tufts University, where she served as, an, as the Dean of the School of Arts and Sciences. Prior to Tufts, Pre President Berger Sweeney was at Wellesley College, where she served for 19 years as a faculty member and associate dean. She received her undergraduate degree in psychobiology from Wellesley College, a master's in public health and environmental health sciences from the University of California, Berkeley, and a PhD in neurotoxicology from the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. She completed her postdoctoral training at the National Institute of Health in Paris, France. President Berger Sweeney is the recipient of numerous honors and awards, including the prestigious National Science Foundation Young Investigator Award and a Lifetime Mentoring Award from the Society for Neuroscience. She is a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and formerly served as treasurer and as chair of the Professional Development Committee for the Society for Neuroscience. All right, so hello everyone. Thank you all very much for coming out to hear a little bit about my scientific career. Um, as you know, I'm now a full-time administrator, but this, you will find, is something near and dear to my heart. It's so nice to see so many people in the audience. I know this must extend 
beyond the neuroscience community. Um, so it's so nice to see so many of you here, even though I will continue to say I have never seen the room as full as when I was announced as president, and I'm still aiming for that, you know, <laughs> three or four hundred people in the audience. Um, but today I'm going to talk a little bit about the studies that we did in the laboratory about autism. And it feels really good to be giving a scientific talk again. I'm an administrator full-time, so I don't get to sit around that much and think about my science. So this is a real pleasure for me. But as you can see, my talk is entitled Of Mice and Men. I hope you see my reference to John Steinbeck. I love this book. And Girls and Autism, Insights from more than 15 years of studying the neuroscience of mouse models of autism spectrum disorders. And I hope by the end of my talk, you'll know a lot more about these. And I think I am going to probably walk around for most of this talk. Um, and this is, as you have heard, on the occasion of the 25th anniversary of the neuroscience program here at Trinity College, being one of the first neuroscience programs at a liberal arts college. So congratulations, Sarah, and to all of you who are putting on such a fantastic group of activities for the year. To give you a brief outline for my talk, I'm going to tell you a little bit about how we model human diseases in mice. Um, how do you know if you have a good model or not? What kinds of research questions have guided my work? What happens when your data throw you a bit for a loop? And a little bit about the lessons that I have learned. Um, for those of you who are non-neuroscientists, um, I, I believe that you will get at least half of the presentation, but then the last half of the presentation may be a little bit more focused um, for my scientific audience. So I will try and, and keep it interesting for everyone. But I thought I would start with a definition of developmental disorders. So I have focused much of my career on neurodevelopmental disorders. And these are disorders that interrupt normal neural or brain development in childhood. You can have either a focused or single area of development, and sometimes those are referred to as specific developmental disorders. And then if multiple areas or regions are involved, it's very often referred to as pervasive developmental disorders. And I'm going to spend most of the time talking about a pervasive developmental disorder in which Early intervention is absolutely essential if you want to improve or, we hope at some point, cure some of these developmental disorders. So I thought I would start with the clinical profile of two developmental disorders. One is schizophrenia on the left. The other is autism spectrum disorders. I will spend most of the time talking about autism spectrum disorders. The core symptoms of autism spectrum disorders are reduced social interaction, reduced communication, reduced joint attention, and very often restricted or stereotyped movements. We'll come back and talk about that. Here, the secondary symptoms are features that you find sometimes, but those are generally considered the core symptoms related to autism. Now, I, since the time I was in graduate school, have been modeling human diseases in mice. And at the time when I was in graduate school in the mid-80s, most people were working with rats as models. But I realized that we were starting to understand a lot about the genome of mice. And I thought if I switched my focus to mice, I would probably have a better chance of understanding the correlations between the genomics of mice and the genomics of the human disorder. So 
it was actually, I was a little bit ahead of the curve and started doing a lot of studies in mice when still most people were working in rats. So what does it mean that you're trying to model a human disorder in a mouse? Are you looking to model the symptoms? So you're trying to look at the symptoms of a disease and model those in the mouse? Are you trying to model the genetics? So if you know what the genetic disorder is, is that what you're trying to model? How about the chemical changes that are occurring in the brain? Is that what you're trying to model? Or are you trying to model the brain anatomy or something else? I can assure you that a good model of a human disease probably models all of these characteristics and more. So when I, we talk about trying to model a disorder, we're talking about trying to model these various aspects of the disease and see if the mouse, in fact, has characteristics that are similar to the human disease. Now, when we talk about something that requires speech, you realize you're not going to model that um, in mice. However, mice do make ultrasonic vocalizations, and sometimes you can look at patterns of ultrasonic vocalizations and try and imply perhaps what's happening in the communications ring. But in general, when we talk about modeling a human disease, these are the kinds of characteristics we're talking about modeling. So um, I'm going to spend most of the time talking about an autism spectrum disorder called Rett syndrome. And I'm going to ask you, looking at this picture, is there something that you notice maybe about Rett syndrome? Does it seem to affect people of a particular race? I can't hear you. No. But what do you notice? They're all girls. And in fact, Rett syndrome, most cases are girls, and we're going to talk a little bit about why that's the case. Um, maybe I can refer you to YouTube to be able to see um, the video of a girl who actually has Rett syndrome. But one thing that you will find is the girls have difficulty with communication. Um, they have difficulty with, there's a hand wringing motion or a hand flapping motion that is usually characteristic and rarely do they live past about the age of 30. Um, usually they have difficulty with respiration and, um, oh, there we go. A glare. So this is look, Esme, look, and she and has some of the yeah, stereotypic is. hand movements. Basically, with Rett syndrome, the, mostly girls little boys generally don't survive. The girls appear to be perfectly healthy at birth, and then somewhere between six and 18 months or so, although with Esme it's probably nearer two, their development slows down. Irregular breathing patterns, which lead to a huge great strain on the heart. Seizures and epilepsy, loss of purposeful use of the hands, loss of speech, loss of being able to eat or drink orally and having to be fed through a peg in the stomach, loss of mobility, scoliosis. They're not great, are they? Um, that just gives you a little bit so that you can see um, an individual with Rett syndrome. Rett syndrome is a regressive developmental disorder. It affects primarily girls because generally boys that have the genetic disorder do not survive birth. It is its frequency approximately one in 12,000 live births. What 
is really, I think, very difficult about Rett syndrome is that parents think that they have a perfectly normal child when the child is born. And sometimes the child has started to develop speech, develop purposeful hand movements, and at the age of six to 18 months, all of that begins to regress. So they lose purposeful movements. Those movements are replaced by, you could see, some of that stereotypic behavior. Sometimes it's hand flapping, sometimes it's hand wringing. And so between six and 18 months, you see a regression of normal characteristics that these individuals have. Then generally between one and three years, there's a period of rapid regression. This is when you see many of the autistic-like symptoms starting to occur. Um, there is stunted physical as well as head growth in the girls. During a pseudo-stabilization period, some of the autistic characteristics regress, but you start to see respiratory problems and very often seizures. During adult decline, you begin to see scoliosis, you see osteoporosis, and very often um, the girls, as I said, it's the respiratory ailments that very often um, are the cause of death in many of these girls. So it is a pretty severe and pervasive developmental disorder. Now, what does, what is Rett syndrome? I'm gonna show you some other slides a bit later, but in 2000, we isolated a gene that is associated with about 95% of the cases of Rett syndrome, meaning that it is in fact the only autism spectrum disorder for which we actually understand the genetic cause. And what goes wrong in Rett syndrome is a gene called MECP2. And I thought I'd show you a little bit about what MECP2 does a little bit more about its genetics. Classically, MECP2, the protein that is coded from the gene MECP2, is a transcriptional repressor. So what does that mean? Here is the backbone of your DNA. And for those of you who are scientists, you realize that generally upstream, there's something called a promoter. Um, and a bit downstream is something called a gene. And generally what happens, DNA unfolds, you have a transcription process, association of a lot of proteins, and a gene is read. Now, what MECP2 does in its normal role is MECP2 binds with the promoter region. There's actually you know, a, a region here that binds specifically with the DNA backbone, and particularly, if you know, CPG islands within the backbone, recruits other proteins, and what the effect is, is to block transmission of the gene. So, if what goes wrong in Rett syndrome is the loss of MECP2, what it means is you've lost the regulation of the gene being transcribed. So instead of a gene which normally turns on sometimes, then it's turned off sometimes, particular places, particular times, now if you don't have this MECP2, a gene can be read all the time. And what became clear with this genetic work is that having too much of a gene turned on is every bit as problematic as not having sufficient gene. So you need genes to be on, but you need them to be off sometimes too. And that's the classic role of MECP2. So where is it located? MECP2 is located on the X chromosome here in the lower region. It's a spontaneous mutation 
MECP2 refers to methyl CBG, CPG binding protein on the X chromosome. It's associated with 95% of RET cases. So there are different kinds of mutations that occur within this gene, but 95% of RET syndrome cases are associated with abnormalities in this MECP2 gene. And what does MECP2 do? It regulates, it's a protein that regulates the transcription of other genes. So the question you may have, or maybe I should say the first thing that I started with is once you know the gene of interest that is abnormal in a particular condition, as I told you, I decided to do a lot of work in mice because when you know the genetics of the human, you can translate that to the genetics of the mouse. And so within two years of the discovery of the gene, people had actually created mouse models that were missing the MECP2 protein. And I was really quite fortunate. Um, I was working at Wellesley College at the time, and one of the people who actually discovered or created one of these mouse models was Rudolf Janisch, who was at MIT. I didn't know Rudolf Janisch, but I would send him emails. I would try and pick up the phone and call him and say, I can do the characterization of these animals. I know your lab is a genetic lab, but I can actually tell you if this is going to be a good model for Rett syndrome. I think I had to call him six or seven times, but when he finally picked up the phone, he said, sure, no problem. And that started 15 years of work on Rett syndrome in my laboratory. So I still say thank you to, to Rudolf Janisch. But let me tell you a little bit about this mouse model. So um, here is a male mouse. Here is a female mouse. If you have an abnormal X chromosome in which you can't produce MECP2, it means that your null male has no protein, no MECP2 protein. Okay? Your females are heterozygote, and that means that they have one normal, here's a normal, and one abnormal X chromosome. So tell me what happens in humans such that you do not have a double dose of genetic material of X chromosomes. Anybody know? Yeah. Right. So in humans, it's probably why you don't see many males born. The females, one or the other X chromosome can be mutated, and they're more likely to be heterozygous for the condition. But what happens that in normal humans that you don't have a double dose of X? Anyone know? Yes. One of the X's is inactivated, exactly. So in humans, what happens is that you have random inactivation of one of the X chromosomes, and that can be different in different cells of the body. But it's just showing you in this mouse model, it's going to be a lot more complicated to study the heterozygous females because you actually don't know in which cells you have a mutant X and which you have a normal X, whereas if you study in null males, you know that they're fundamentally missing the protein of interest. Okay? That makes sense? Any head nods? Yes. Okay. So I thought I would also just share with you, I showed you classically what MECP2 does and that it's a repressor protein, but here are some other functions that we understand for MECP2. And the question is, I showed you that MECP2 regulates other genes, but the question is, which are the genes of interest and how do they create the phenotype that we call Rett syndrome? And that is still the $20 million question. 
This just happens to be a list. This is for my scientists. Some of the genes that are regulated by MECP2. But how you get from dysfunction of particular genes to this pervasive neurobiological syndrome is something that we don't understand very well. Okay, so the first question that I asked in the laboratory once I received these mice from Rudolf Janisch was, you know, are MECP2 mice a good model for human Rett syndrome? That was the first question that I wanted to ask. So this just shows you, here is a typical wild-type normal C57 black mouse. And here is one of our MECP2 mutant null males, okay? And very briefly, what I can tell you is the MECP2 null male mutants recapitulate a lot of the human condition. And the null males appear to be more affected than heterozygous females. And we talked about why that was the case because of random X inactivation. So here is a summary of those first set of experiments that we did with the MECP2 mouse to try and determine whether it was a good model of Rett syndrome or not. So here are the characteristics we were looking for. Did you find them in male nulls? heterozygous females, and is it found in Rett syndrome girls? This is one slide that represents about two and a half years worth of work. That's what you find as a scientist. You will work, and the better you can summarize it, sometimes the better um, a scientist you are. But just pointing out that I told you one of the characteristics of Rett syndrome was abnormalities in motor function, a core symptom of autism, and we found that motor functions were severely impaired in our male mice. We had some impairment in cognitive function, and those are the things that I was particularly interested in studying. But I have to tell you, the first time that these mice arrived in my laboratory, and I'm going to tell you, the regulations in 1990 weren't quite what, what they were now. Rudolf Janisch put these in a taxi cab and sent them to me. Okay, in a container, but in a taxi cab, shipped them over from MIT out to Wellesley, and that's how I got my mice. And the first time, I wanted to stop and observe the mice and kind of see, you know, what do they look like? And I looked into the cage, and I saw the mice were doing this, that stereotypic hand motion that I had seen, heard described in the girls. And from the time I saw that, I was biased, and I thought, these are going to be a really good model. So all of the experiments that I showed you, I did not do myself because I felt I was walking into the experiment with a bias because I already thought these were going to be a great model. But most of the experiments um, that were done to fill this chart were in fact done um, by the undergraduates in my laboratory. So um, there you go. I thought it was probably a good model. Um, here is a real data slide because I felt like I needed to put some real data into this presentation. This shows you um, an experiment that we do in the lab, and it is an experiment to look at socialization. You have three chambers here. You place your mouse of interest, your test mouse, into the center chamber, and you basically see the amount of time that it spends either with in the cage or the part where there's another mouse or the empty cage. This is simply showing you the same thing, but a picture with real mice, a real mouse, um, you know, performing this. Now, what we found, you know, we thought Rett syndrome, it's an autism spectrum disorder. We expect the animals to be less sociable than normal, 
less social. That was our hypothesis. That's what we predicted. Well, we found just the opposite. We found that our null mice were spending more time in contact with a stranger mouse than in an empty chamber. So it countered our expectations. And then we started going back to the human literature, and we discovered that if you looked or if you talked to parents of Rett syndrome girls, they actually described that these girls could be, in fact, very, very sociable. In fact, they liked to spend time next to their caretakers. And they were surprised sometimes that it had been characterized as an autism spectrum disorder because they were so, they appeared to their caretakers to be so sociable. So even though we assumed autism spectrum disorder, they're going to be less sociable, we had to trust the data as they came out, which showed in our experiments, and then we found some support in the human literature and narratives that, in fact, they could be more sociable than um, ordinary. Now, the second thing, so we characterized this model, and then the focus of the experiments are in our laboratory was to try and treat it. How are you going to treat it? What kind of treatments might you use and why? So um, our original hypothesis was that some of the cognitive deficits that you see in the Rett syndrome girls, and hence we might be able to reproduce in the mice, were based on malfunctions of the cholinergic system. So to understand a little bit about that, I'm going to go over the cholinergic life cycle with the understanding that if you're looking for pharmacological interventions, you are going to try and interrupt something in the life cycle of the normal protein or um, the cycle, of the cholinergic cycle. So here is a representative synaptic bouton. Here is the next cell or another neuron. Sometimes it's a muscle cell. And what happens with choline or acetylcholine is it's found in the blood. It can be taken up into the presynaptic bouton through a high affinity choline uptake carrier with acetylcoenzyme A in the presence of choline acetyltransferase forms acetylcholine. Anybody tell, can tell me where acetylcoenzyme A comes from? Any biochemist here? What they hear? Anything? Did I hear Krebs cycle? Krebs cycle. Acetylcoenzyme A, one of the byproducts of the Krebs cycle. I'm just testing. I'm seeing how well you're learning in your, your classes. Okay, so acetylcholine taken up in synaptic vesicles with the appropriate stimulation, right? Synaptic transmission is released, floats across the synapse, interacts with cholinergic receptors, nicotinic or muscarinic, um, to finish the life cycle. It is broken down by acetylcholinesterase into acetate and choline, okay? That's the life cycle. Summarize it very quickly, synthesis of acetylcholine, acetylcoenzyme A and choline in the presence of CAT or choline acetyltransferase forms acetylcholine. The degradation, acetylcholine in the presence of another enzyme, acetylcholinesterase, forms choline and acetate. So as I told you, our hypothesis was that decreased cholinergic function early in development created some of the impairments or outcomes in Rett syndrome. And there is some additional background evidence that cholinergic markers are decreased in Rett syndrome. Okay? So, there we go. Now, I'm going to ask you to become pharmacologists.
tell me, how would you boost cholinergic functioning? How would you make sure there's more acetylcholine around? What, would, what could you do? Yes. You could block acetylcholinesterase. That means more acetylcholines around. Anything else you could do? You've worked on the degradation. How about the synthesis? What might you do? Yeah. Okay, so an agonist for the enzyme. Might you just increase the precursor? That'll do it too, right? So more choline around might actually lead to more acetylcholine being formed. But maybe the other thing that you were getting at is if you had an agonist of the cholinergic system of some kind, that might be another way to boost cholinergic function. Okay, do you understand? You can all now be neuropharmacologists. That's fundamentally what we sit around and think about. How do you boost cholinergic function? How do you suppress cholinergic function? That's, that's what I learned as a neuropharmacologist. So here you go. Those are ways that if you want to address the hypothesis of whether acetylcholine has something to do with Rett syndrome, you can do that by looking at cholinergic function. Now, the other thing I want to say about treating Rett syndrome is I've said that Rett syndrome is associated with this protein or lack of protein, MECP2. It turns out that MECP2 seems to be the levels highly regulated in neurons, such that too little of the protein will cause abnormalities and damage, as well as too much. That means all of the people that were thinking about treating Rett syndrome by reintroducing the gene through some kind of transgene method were going to have difficulty because it's pretty tightly regulated in the cell. So our laboratory decided to approach treating Rett syndrome in another way. We wanted to look at choline, a precursor of acetylcholine. It's also a nutritional supplement to see if we could, in fact, affect Rett syndrome through giving more of the precursor. So here, once again, for our neurochemists, that's what choline looks like. It's found in high levels in um, eggs, also in liver, if you like to eat liver. And you have particularly high demands for choline during pregnancy. So if you look at most prenatal vitamins, you will see that they have very high levels of choline in them because it's a very, very important um, nutrient and supplement during pregnancy and also during lactation. So we did a set of experiments where we gave choline in the drinking water to the pregnant dams, and then we let them give birth and looked at the effects in the offspring. Okay, these experiments took quite a bit of time, but that's how we were starting to look at choline. So what did we find? We found that choline does enhance cholinergic functions. In our RET mice, we saw improved motor coordination. We actually had a little MRI machine where we could actually measure the volume of the brains in the animals that had choline and those that did not. And we found increased brain volume. We were also able to do an MR spectra and were able to see increased neuronal health and energetics. And for those of you who understand or know anything about growth factors, we also found that the choline supplementation increased growth factors. Once again, I've shown you one slide, and this was about three and a half years of data with a lot of collaborators helping out. We were able to publish all of these data, but I thought overall the effects of choline 
were modest, and I didn't see improvements in cognitive performance, and that is what I was trying to target. So they were good enough to publish, but I didn't think good enough for a treatment. So we kept looking. Now, there was a pharmaceutical firm in Rome, Italy, that was reading all of this cholinergic data, or the studies that we were putting out, and they called me up, literally, out of the blue, and said, we have something that we think is better than choline. It's called acetyl-L-carnitine. I kind of call it choline on steroids. And they said, we will pay you if you test our drug. I said, that sounds great. Here's an ethical thing, though. I would not take any money personally for being a consultant on the project. I thought that was a conflict of interest. But I did accept the money to do experiments. So they weren't paying me, but they were paying for these experiments um, to happen in the laboratory. So acetyl-L-carnitine, um, it's a precursor for acetylcholine. Also, it has a function of shuttling acetyl groups across mitochondria, and it improves performance in aged rats. Those were the data that we had to deal with. And so, fundamentally, another drug that improves cholinergic function. So we wanted to test that out. Um, and these are just another nice picture showing some of the effects that acetylcarnitine has. We looked at acetylcarnitine. This time, we gave injections to the mice themselves, either null or control mice, from postnatal day one, the day of, after, the day of birth, through postnatal day 36, and then we looked for effects. We found that acetyl-L-carnitine does improve motor activity, so that was a good thing. Um, we continued and we wanted to look at the effects it had on brain structure. So, I think that you do not need to be a neuroscientist um, to tell me between this neuron and this neuron, which seems to have the most extensive dendritic tree. The first one, the one on the left. This is a normal animal, and this is a cell in the dentate gyrus, which is part of the hippocampus, impregnated with Golgi, compared to one of a null, a saline, I'm sorry, a null animal that had saline. Here is what the dendritic tree looks like after acetyl-L-carnitine, okay? Even before I show you the data, you can see that acetyl-L-carnitine was improving the neuronal morphology. And up to some degree, a more extensive, complex dendritic branch is correlated with a higher functioning neuron. So these are data that are just showing, looking both at dendritic length and dendritic complexity that our acetyl-L-carnitine improved both of those functions in our null male mice. Overall, acetyl-carnitine did show enhancements in general health, motor function, grip strength, cognitive factors. So it did look better than choline. But if you look carefully at these data, you will see that it improved performance up to about day, postnatal day 30, and after that, it did not seem to be effective anymore. Okay, so interesting, but once again, not good enough. So um, the next steps that we were taking is to look at galantamine butyl carbamate, it is an ACHE inhibitor, which someone said, um, along with a nicotinic agonist. In essence, what it does is improve cholinergic function, but via 
another mechanism. And one of my collaborators, Bonnie Davis and I, have actually just um, completed a patent for this drug, and we hope that we will find people who will be interested in determining whether galanthamine butyl carbamate will be successful at treating Rett syndrome, other autism spectrum disorders, and possibly um, Alzheimer's disease. So those are the next set of experiments to be done, and that's probably what I would have done next. Um, another branch that my research was taking before I moved here to become president was to start to look at common mechanisms that seem to underlie a series of autism spectrum disorders, schizophrenia, and other neurodevelopmental disorders. And I promise you um, that I am not going to spend a lot of time on this. Um, our working hypothesis is that something called um, the carbon metabolic cycle is underlying a lot of neurodevelopmental disorders. And what you will see here is what the carbon-1 metabolic cycle looks like. And all of the things in red, there has been a correlation between autism and decreased functioning of these particular elements. Everything in blue, there's been a correlation between autism and increased functioning. But it's one of the reasons why we think this metabolic cycle may have something to do or be one of those underlying mechanisms for a lot of neurodevelopmental disorders. So I thought I would end my talk by telling you a couple of things that I think are important in making a successful scientist, assuming that my scientific career, at least to this point, has been reasonably successful. Here are some of the things. Asking important scientific questions, focusing on a few, and being able to write well and communicate your findings well. Having a very supportive family structure, and yes, I do see my husband standing up in the back um, supporting me again, but I could not have put in the late hours, the long work, without a very supportive family. I did have some success in external funding, a little bit of luck came with that, so I had the money to be able to carry out my experiments. I had fantastic collaborators, excellent mentors. I worked with really nice, smart people, including, excuse me, a lot of bright, enthusiastic undergraduates. I had a passion for my work, which for me was motivated by the fact that I thought I was trying to make a difference for these girls with Rett syndrome. Sometimes I would get calls or emails from the parents who would read my scientific papers in mice and say, do you think this is gonna work on girls? It's a rare syndrome that not a lot of people study and they were just desperate to find something that would help their girls. And it's why so many of my experiments were do no harm. You know, dietary supplements, but I certainly didn't want people to read my papers and try anything that I thought would be harmful to these girls. But that was part of my motivation. Um, and I can't forget persistence, hard work, and really never being satisfied. There is something about a scientist, I think, that you're just never sat satisfied. What's the next experiment? What do you want to do next? It's constant motivation. So these are just pictures of some of the people that were involved in the experiments, some of my collaborators there at Tufts, and I just got a point out for you. They're all on the ground level standing I'm on the third step. <laughs> that is how tall. All of the people in my lab at Tufts, I couldn't figure out why I got the tall people. But here's you know, different iterations of my labs at Wellesley. Here are some of us when we were at a Society for Neuroscience meeting. And I just couldn't resist um, saying thank you to all of the great undergraduates 
who have worked in my laboratory over the years. So many of them I've kept in touch with. So many of them continue to be in science or medicine, but it's really been just a phenomenal group of people. Okay, we had, you know, some that defected to law, but it's okay. It's okay. Um, just a really great set of undergraduates. Also, phenomenal postdocs and technicians that worked in the lab. And I particularly have to hire, uh, I'm sorry, have to highlight um, Laura Shavitz and tell you a little bit about her story. Laura was an undergraduate in my laboratory. She then spent a year after she graduated, kind of similar to the BAMA program that you have. She was there because her husband was actually doing a master's at MIT. After she left the lab, she went to Stanford and worked on her PhD there, completed her PhD when her husband was moved back to the Boston area. And she came to me and she said, I'm thinking of leaving science. It's just too hard. I have a kid. I'm not sure how I can manage to do this, have a family, and do my scientific research. I thought Laura was one of the best students I had ever had. And I said, you're not giving up. You are actually coming to my lab to do a postdoc. Laura worked with me for the next seven years, um, had another kid in the meantime. Um, when I left Tufts, she left to go back to live in Southern California. And now she is the global head of research and development at Mousera, a startup company in Silicon Valley. I wrote her as I was putting this together, said, how are you doing? And she loves it. She absolutely loves it. So this is particularly, I think I want to say, to those of you, maybe particularly to some of the women in the audience, who sometimes might get a bit discouraged. It's hard to balance it all. But try and work with understanding people. Keep plugging away, because you could end up as the global head of research and development at a startup company. I also had outstanding collaborators with whom I worked. And here, just a few references for my talk. Thank you for, my atten or for your attention. I was going to try not to talk this long, but I couldn't help it. <laughs> Thank you.